0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Ida B. Wells Barnett, one of those figures who connects to a lot of our past episodes. She's mentioned in our podcast on Frederick Douglass, and the two of them were colleagues and friends. In our show on the Night of Terror at the Aquaquan Workhouse, we talk about her refusing to march in a segregated section of the 1913 woman suffrage progression, instead saying, I am refusing to play by that racist rule and marching with the Illinois contingent with everyone else. She investigated the death of Robert Charles in New Orleans in 1900 and the racist violence that surrounded that And then the discussion of lynching and our two-parter on the Wilmington coup of 1898 was also informed by her investigative reporting and her anti-lynching campaign. Ida B. Wells Barnett fought against lynching for decades, and this on its own would be remarkable, but she also lived at a time when it was not common at all for a woman, especially a woman of color, to become a prominent journalist and speaker in this way. And then doing this work also meant that she had to speak out very candidly about violence and about rape. Discussing rape at all was a huge taboo, but it was especially taboo coming from a woman. And for a substantial part of her career, she was an unmarried woman, so it was even more taboo. And that is all why we are talking about her today. Ida B. Wells Barnett
0: was born Ida Bell Wells in Holly Springs, Mississippi on July 16, 1862. She was the oldest child of James Wells, who was known as Jim, and Elizabeth Warrenton, who was known as Lizzie, and they were both enslaved. So Ida was enslaved from birth. Jim and Lizzie both worked for a man named Spires Balling. Jim was owned by another man, but had been hired out to Balling for an apprenticeship in carpentry.
1: The American Civil War was ongoing when Ida was a baby, and the part of Mississippi where she and her parents lived was no stranger to raids and skirmishes. The Emancipation Proclamation was issued on January 1st of 1863, and while it technically freed her family and everyone else who was enslaved in Mississippi, slavery persisted until Mississippi surrendered on May 4th of 1865, and probably beyond that point, really, um, as word reached more outlying areas of what had happened. Once they were able to do so, Jim and Lizzie Wells made their marriage legal.
0: The young Ida Wells was too young to remember the earliest years of Reconstruction. But in general, life was really difficult for the freed people. It was also chaotic as politicians and social reformers tried to work out what to do about the formerly enslaved population and the social and economic conditions that slavery had caused. But the Wellses had a couple of advantages. Jim's owner had also been his father, and Jim had no siblings. And being his owner's only child came with
1: some privileges, including an education. For a time after the end of the war, the Wellses continued to work for Spire's Balling. But then, Balling told Jim to vote for the Democratic candidate in the upcoming election, and Jim had no intention of doing this. As we've talked about before, the Democratic Party at this point was mostly made up of wealthy white slave owners. He intended to vote for the radical Republican candidate. He came back from the polls to find that his employer had locked him out of the workplace.
0: The fact that Jim and Lizzie Wells were skilled workers rather than manual laborers made it easier for them to find other work. Lizzie and her children also enrolled in school. The family also became politically active, and Ida's father became a member of the board at Rust College, then known as Shaw College, where Ida would go on to study. Ida learned quickly, and she read voraciously, including reading the Bible all the way through, which was the only reading that was allowed in the Wells' home
1: on Sundays. In 1878, Ida Wells' life changed dramatically. She went to visit her grandparents on their farm, and while she was away from home, a yellow fever epidemic spread to Memphis. At first, when they heard about this outbreak, Ida and her grandparents weren't particularly concerned. Memphis had dealt with yellow fever before and outbreaks had never made it as far from there as Holly Springs, which was roughly 50 miles or 80 kilometers away. People also blamed yellow
0: fever on miasmas or bad swamp air. So they thought Holly Springs was protected by being on the highest ground in the area. So instead of calling for a quarantine, officials in Holly Springs offered refuge to Memphis residents who were fleeing the illness. But yellow fever is really transmitted by mosquitoes, not by swamp vapor. So once people arrived in Holly Springs carrying the illness, it spread rapidly.
1: Holly Springs had a population of about 3,500 people, and more than 1,400 of them contracted the disease. More than 300 people died. This included both of Ida's parents. And as soon as she and her grandparents learned what had happened, she took a freight train back to Holly Springs. She went against the advice of basically everyone. Everyone was telling her that it was way too dangerous. There were not even any passenger trains that were running, which was why she was on a freight train in the first place. But there was nobody else to look after her siblings. And by the time she got back home, her baby brother had also died. Ida's father
0: had been a Mason, and his Masonic brothers came to the family's aid. They started talking about dividing up the Wells children, sending them to live with other families in ones and twos. Ida's sister, Eugenia, was of special concern. She was paralyzed from the waist down due to severe scoliosis.
1: Ida was in the room for this conversation, but she wasn't really consulted about these decisions. And she finally told her father's Masonic brothers that they were not going to send any of her siblings anywhere, that her parents would be spinning in their graves if they heard that their children had been split up. She said that if the Masons helped her find a job, that she would look after all of her siblings.
0: With that, she became both the breadwinner and the head of household. She and her siblings had two legal guardians, but Ida got a job as a teacher so that she could raise and support her five younger siblings. She was only 16 at this point.
1: Ida B. Wells kept up her studies while she worked as a teacher and raised her siblings. Her job was at a rural school, so she had to travel back and forth to it by mule. She also started taking college courses at Rust College, although she was expelled from the school in 1881 or 1882. The details of exactly why are not known, but she wrote about losing her temper with the teachers and speaking to them with hateful words. In
0: 1881, when she was 19, one of Wells' aunts invited her and her two youngest sisters to move to Memphis. By this point, her brothers had both been placed in apprenticeships, and Eugenia had gone to live with another aunt. And this offer gave the Wells sisters the chance to move to a bigger city with more opportunities. And it gave Ida more freedom to pursue her own education and career, since her aunt would be helping to look after her sisters.
1: It was in Memphis that she really started to become politically active, which we will talk about after a sponsor break. After moving to Memphis, Ida B. Wells continued to work as a teacher. She had a job in Woodstock, Tennessee, which was not all that far away. She traveled back and forth to it by train. She was very carefully trying to build a middle-class life for herself and her sisters, stretching her teacher's pay to cover things like nice dresses and a comfortable place for them to live. And one of the things that she spent her money on was on first-class tickets in the ladies' car whenever she traveled by train.
0: The lady's car was more comfortable than the second-class cars, which were called smokers. The lady's car was quieter, and it had more comfortable seats. And since she was a young, petite, attractive woman traveling alone, it was also
1: just safer. She had been going back and forth from Memphis to Woodstock for two years without incident in the lady's car. And then in 1883, she was traveling back to Memphis from Holly Springs on the Chesapeake, Ohio, and Southwest Railroad, The conductor came to take her ticket and told her that she would have to move to the smoker's car. Wells refused. She had bought a ticket,
0: and she was, as was clear by her dress, her demeanor, and behavior, a lady. The conductor insisted that she would have to move and even went so far as to move her luggage and belongings into the forward car, expecting her to follow them. When she stayed where she was, he came back and attempted to remove her bodily
1: from her seat. She once again refused to move. She was, as we said, a petite woman. She braced herself against the seat to keep this man from dragging her away, and when he kept manhandling her, she bit him. Ultimately,
0: Wells was forcibly removed from the train, with both sleeves torn out of her linen duster. And when she got back to Memphis, she filed suit against the railroad. She was removed from the ladies' car a second time before that suit had even been settled, so she filed another one.
1: So this was kind of on a cusp of segregation by race on railroads. Like, it was a lot more common to have a ladies' car that women could pay additional, you know, an, an upgraded fare to sit in and all the cars were, all the other cars were just kind of a, a mix and it was becoming more formalized to instead have have train cars segregated by race. And so this was sort of in the interim of that, that changeover happening. So a circuit court found in Ida B. Wells' favor under the Civil Rights Act of 1875 and she was awarded $500 in the first case and $200 in the second case. But the railroad appealed the decision, and the Tennessee Supreme Court overturned that ruling in 1887. The Supreme Court's assertion was that Wells had only filed the suit in the first place to harass the train company and that her actions were, quote, not in good faith to obtain a comfortable seat for a short ride.
0: That is infuriating. Uh, Wells was devastated, and it wasn't just the loss of the case. It was what that loss signified, especially since she had been taking this legal action pretty much on her own without the help of any civil rights organizations or the greater Black community of Memphis. Her case wound up being one of the ones on the road to Plessy versus Ferguson, which we have covered on the show before, in which the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that racial segregation was constitutional.
1: This whole experience inspired Wells to become more politically vocal. While she was still working as a teacher, she started working as a journalist as well under the pen name of Iola. She wrote about civil rights, and she wrote about social issues, and she was eventually nicknamed Iola, Princess of the Press.
0: By the end of the 1880s, Wells had already written a prolific body of newspaper columns. She also purchased a one-third share in the Memphis Free Speech and Headlight, in 1889, and eventually she and one of the other co-owners, J.L. Fleming, bought out their third partner, and they owned and ran the free speech together. In 1891, Wells wrote an article that was critical of the Memphis School Board, and her teaching contract was not renewed. She then turned her attention to journalism full-time.
1: And soon, the focus of her journalism turned to lynching, The catalyst was the May 9th, 1892 lynching of Calvin McDowell, Thomas Moss, and Henry Stewart in Memphis. They had been arrested and charged with maintaining a public nuisance while trying to defend themselves in a grocery store called The People's Grocery from an armed white mob. McDowell was the store's manager, Stewart was the clerk, and Moss was the president of the joint stock company that owned the store. This incident started with a group of black
0: and white children playing marbles near the store. A fight broke out after a black child won all the marbles. A white man came out and beat the child who had won the game, and a group of black men attempted to intervene. A white mob formed in retaliation, bent on destroying the people's grocery. One of the white instigators actually owned a competing grocery store.
1: Yeah, they definitely had it in their minds to run this grocery store out of business and to hurt or kill its owners. So after McDowell, Moss, and Stewart were jailed on the public nuisance charge, an armed militia of Black men tried to stand guard outside of the jail. It was a known risk if a Black man was in jail for something that a white mob could come and take him out of that jail and harm him. So they were standing guard. But eventually, the sheriff ordered them to disperse and confiscated all of their weapons. After they were gone, a crowd of white men, as they had feared, came to the jail. They took McDowell, Moss, and Stewart to a field outside of town and shot all of them.
0: Wells knew all of these men. She was friends with Tom Moss and she, along with the rest of the Black population, was terrified, especially since the sheriff secured a court order authorizing him to shoot any Black person who seemed to be causing trouble on sight.
1: Even though Memphis had passed a law banning the sale of firearms to its Black population, Wells bought a pistol, and she carried it in her purse. But she also recognized that that pistol was only going to go so far to defend her. In the pages of the free speech, she became one of the many Black voices urging the rest of the Black population to leave Memphis. There was actually a mass exodus out of Memphis. It was big enough that it set off an economic crisis as Black business owners and laborers fled the city.
0: After this incident, Wells began researching, investigating, and writing about lynching. This was the work that she would pursue for
1: most of the rest of her life. Almost immediately, this work led to Wells being threatened with lynching herself. On May 21, 1892, she published an article in The Free Speech that started out with a statement that eight men had already been lynched in the span of just a week. Five of them had been accused of rape. She went on to write, quote, nobody in this section of the country believes the old threadbare lie that Negro men rape white women. If Southern white men are not careful, they will overreach themselves and public sentiment will have a reaction. A conclusion will then be reached, which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women.
0: This was basically the same argument that would appear in the Wilmington Daily Record in 1898 that these rape allegations were stemming from consensual relationships between Black men and white women. That was the article that was used as justification for the Wilmington coup and the mass racist violence that followed it. And Wells's article sparked similar outrage, although it did not launch a massacre.
1: A few days later, a white paper called The Daily Commercial responded to Wells' article, and here's a quote. Quote, The fact that a black scoundrel is allowed to live and utter such loathsome and repulsive calumnies is a volume of evidence as to the wonderful patience of Southern whites, but we have had enough of it. Similar sentiments ran
0: in other papers, and a mob of people convened at the Cotton Exchange Building in Memphis, intending to lynch both co-owners of the free speech. But Wells had gone to Philadelphia to attend the African Methodist Episcopal Church's General Conference, and from there, she went on a trip to New York rather than returning to Memphis. J.L. Fleming had also left town for fear of his life. While
1: Wells and Fleming survived, the free speech didn't. The mob sacked its offices and destroyed all of their equipment and furniture.
0: After this incident, Wells followed her own advice, and she left Memphis. She didn't even go back to try to get her belongings. We will
1: talk about her life after leaving Memphis, after a sponsor break. Even though Ida B. Wells left Memphis behind, she did not back down in her writing against lynching after all of this happened. She published a response to what had happened in the New York Age on June 25th, 1892. And then a lot of that response became her pamphlet, Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases. This pamphlet is one of the most well-known of her many, many written works. It started with a letter of praise from Frederick Douglass saying of his own efforts related to lynching, quote, I have spoken, but my word is feeble in comparison.
0: To quickly recap,
1: lynching is the
0: extrajudicial murder of someone who has been accused of a crime or other wrongdoing. Between 1882 and 1968, there were more than 4,000 recorded lynchings in the United States. More than 70% of the victims were black, and many of the white victims were civil rights workers or other people who tried to defend black citizens. Most of these happened in the South, and they were a way to terrorize the black community and violently reinforce white supremacy.
1: By the time Ida B. Wells started her anti-lynching work, a false idea had been well established within the white community, and that idea was that Black men were raping white women and that lynching was necessary to discourage these rapes. Wells tackled this idea head on, countering that there were consensual relationships between Black men and white women, like we alluded to before the break, She wrote, quote, "...hundreds of such cases might be cited, but enough have been given to prove the assertion that there are white women in the South who love the Afro-Americans' company, even as there are white men notorious for their preference for Afro-American women." She also
0: documented multiple instances of the same pattern. A black man accused of a crime, then removed from his jail cell by a white mob who murdered him and desecrated his body. She wrote about the disenfranchisement of the Black population in the South through racist voting laws and how that was contributing to the problem. And she picked apart how white newspapers were participants in this violence as well, repeating the same unproven and sometimes completely fabricated allegations about the victims of lynching as though they were fact, often using racist and sensationalized language to do it.
1: In Southern Horrors, Wells also wrote about the need for the Black community to protect itself since no one else was willing to do it, writing, quote, The lesson this teaches, and which every Afro-American should ponder well, is that a Winchester rifle should have a place of honor in every Black home, and it should be used for that protection which the law refuses to give.
0: She made the point that this wasn't about the law. The people who carried out these lynchings were not interested in punishing all alleged rapists, only the black ones. Lynch mobs weren't operating within any kind of legal framework, and they were celebrating the murders they committed with things like postcards depicting the hanged and desecrated bodies of the victims.
1: After the publication of Southern Horrors, Wells spent some time in New York City, and then she went to the United Kingdom for an anti lynching lecture tour. She wrote about her travels in a dispatch called Inter Ocean*, including how, for the first time en route to Britain, white passengers treated her with, quote, the courtesy they would have offered to any lady of their own race. But she also remarked that some of them seemed to be courteous to her in order to shock the other white people around them. Wells returned from the United
0: Kingdom to take part in a boycott and protest of the World's Columbian Exposition in 1893, also known as the Chicago World's Fair. As we've talked about on the show before, these fairs were celebrations of a very particular aspect of American progress, that being white progress. The Chicago World's Fair left Black Americans almost entirely out of its exhibitions, and what representations there were were demeaning, Also, apart from janitors, porters, and laborers, the fair only had two Black employees. Both of them were clerks.
1: So, Ida B. Wells, Frederick Douglass, F.L. Barnett, and J. Carlin Penn published a pamphlet called The Reason Why the Colored American is Not in the World's Columbian Exposition, which was basically an explainer written for fair attendees with an introduction in English, French, and German. It walked through the many social and political issues affecting the Black population, and then it detailed a lengthy back-and-forth with organizers, basically going back and forth about including Black people in the fair that showed discrimination against the Black community at every step.
0: Ferdinand Lee Barnett, co-author of this pamphlet, attorney and founder of Chicago's first Black newspaper, would go on to be Wells' husband. It's not clear exactly when they met or how their courtship began. Wells had, from her teenage years, had lots of suitors. And by her 30s, she was frustrated that she was not yet married. And the fact that she wasn't caused a lot of suspicion about her morals. Black women were heavily stereotyped as promiscuous, and Wells's work meant she was often in the company of men. So she had to constantly defend herself against malicious gossip. Some of this
1: was, like, malicious gossip published in newspapers as fact. It wasn't just people talking about her behind her back. For a time, this courtship was long distance. Wells returned to the UK in 1893 and 1894 to continue her anti-lynching tour. She was really finding a much more receptive audience to her work in the UK than in the U.S., She helped found the British Anti-Lynching Committee, which started launching other anti-lynching groups and working with British clergy to get their American colleagues on board. Ida B.
0: Wells and Ferdinand Barnett married on June 27, 1895, when Wells was 32. She was so well-known by this point that the New York Times mentioned her wedding in a small feature at the bottom of the front page.
1: That suspicion and criticism of her personal life that had been going on while she was single didn't really stop after Wells Barnett's marriage, though. Other activists, including Susan B. Anthony, criticized her for getting married. Susan B. Anthony basically told her she shouldn't be messing around with some man when she had important work to do. But unlike a lot of the white women who were activists and were choosing not to marry, Wells Barnett did not come from money or have other family to help support her in her work. She also just wanted to be married and to have children. She and Frederick had each found in one another a partner that they could trust and who could work with and support the other in the civil rights work that they were both doing.
0: And their marriage was not exactly conventional. Wells Barnett hyphenated her last name rather than taking her husband's. And her work and travel did slow down a little bit as she raised children. She and Ferdinand had four kids together, and he had two from his marriage to his late first wife. But she did not stop working, and sometimes she traveled to speaking engagements with the babies and a nurse.
1: Wells barnett continued her anti-lynching campaign for much of the rest of her life, and she also advocated for other causes. She called for a kindergarten in Chicago that would enroll Black children. She was part of the movement for women's suffrage, and in addition to investigating and spreading awareness of the lynching of Black men, she did the same for lynching, rape, and sexual assault of Black women.
0: She also butted heads with a lot of other leaders in these spaces. She was described as difficult, headstrong, stubborn, temperamental, and prickly. She helped found multiple civil rights organizations, but she often didn't become an ongoing member in the face of these personality conflicts, many of which were likely due to the fact that she was not behaving as was expected of a
1: woman. Yeah, it's pretty well agreed upon that if she had been a man, a lot of the things that people criticized her for would have instead been seen as assets. She also called out both Black and white activists for their complicity or their missteps. This included ongoing disagreements with Booker T. Washington, whose work was a lot more focused on the idea of giving Black citizens the tools and education to help themselves, not on advocating for changes to the law or aggressively fighting back against injustice. She really saw his approach as too conciliatory and too tolerant of white racism and she finally cut ties with him after he refused to denounce a particularly horrifying lynching.
0: She also called out past podcast subject Jane Addams. On January 3rd, 1901, Addams published an essay in The Independent called Respect for the Law. This essay clearly and definitively condemned lynching, but it also gave the people perpetrating these crimes a lot of the benefit of the doubt. She wrote, quote, Let us assume that the Southern citizens who take part in and abet the lynching of Negroes honestly believe that it is the only successful method of dealing with a certain class of crimes. And later she went on to write, quote, Let us give the Southern citizens the full benefit of this position and assume that they have set aside trial by jury and all processes of law because they have become convinced that this brutal method of theirs is the most efficient method in dealing with a peculiar case of crime committed by one race against another.
1: Jane Addams, in a lot of ways, when it came to to, to racism and racial discrimination, like, a lot, of, in a lot of ways, she was really progressive. And this was not a case where she was really progressive. And, you know, Ida B. Wells Barnett knew her and worked with her. They were both living in Chicago. She published a rebuttal on May 16th so, uh, Wells Barnett started out by praising Jane Adams and saying that she was reluctant to diminish the impact of what Adams had done. Adams was a well-known, well-respected white woman who was condemning lynching, and she was doing so with a dispassionate and logical argument." So this just was not something that most white leaders in the United States were doing. So Wells Barnett made it clear that if every white activist wrote a similar essay, the nation would be in a much better place.
0: But from there, Wells Barnett directly criticized the assumptions that Adams had rested her argument on. She pointed out that giving the perpetrators of lynching the benefit of the doubt as, quote, doing what was best was dangerous and damaging. She also picked apart, once again, the idea that the victims of lynching had committed rape, using the Chicago Tribune's annual lynching statistics to back up what she was
1: saying. Wells Barnett was present at the founding of the NAACP, and at its first meeting, she gave a talk called Lynching Our National Crime, which incorporated her, at that point, almost 20 years of research and advocacy. To sum it up, quote, first, lynching is color line murder. Second, crimes against women is the excuse, not the cause. And third, it is a national crime and requires a national remedy. So although she did continue to participate in the NAACP's work at various points, she wasn't listed as an official founder, and she eventually distanced herself from that organization.
0: In spite of Wells Barnett's lifelong work, there was no national remedy for lynching. Although some states passed laws against lynching, Southern Democrats blocked efforts to pass laws at the national level. The protections Wells Barnett was fighting for were finally included, at least on paper, in the Civil Rights Act of 1964.
1: By that point, Wells Barnett had been dead for more than 30 years. She died on March 25, 1931, at the age of 69. At the time of her death, she had been working on her autobiography, which she started on about three years before. She was motivated, in part, to write this autobiography by attending a Negro History Week event in Chicago. They were discussing a book by Carter G. Woodson, who was one of the first scholars of Black history. Like, that was becoming a field, and he's recognized as as one of the first people doing this work. His book that he had written on the topic made no mention of her anti-lynching work at all. And she realized that if she wanted her life and work to be documented, she was going to have to do it herself.
0: Her youngest daughter, Alfreda Duster, edited this autobiography, which is called Crusade for Justice, and it was published in 1970. And the book came out just as there was an increasing focus on both Black history and women's history in the United States. It helped bring Wells Barnett's work and accomplishments back to the forefront of the national consciousness.
1: Yeah, and those decades between her death and when the book came out, she she kind of faded into the background. She wasn't included in a lot of discussion about Black history. Today, there is an Ida B. Wells Barnett Museum at the Spires Balling House. The Ida B. Wells Barnett House in Chicago is a private residence, but it's also a national historical landmark and the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which is a memorial to the victims of lynching and racist terror, opened on April 26, 2018 in Montgomery, Alabama. And we will end with a quote that sums up both what made her such a force to be reckoned with and why people describe her with words like prickly That makes me angry, but I also know that people describe me with words like prickly, so I feel like a tiny bit of kinship with her. (laughs) Although, she is far beyond my abilities. Anyway, in 1909, a man had been lynched in Cairo, Illinois. And according to a 1904 Illinois, Illinois law, a sheriff whose prisoner was lynched had to be removed from his position, and then he had to apply for reinstatement. So the sheriff who was involved with this lynching, uh, I don't know if he was directly involved, but the man had been taken from his jail while he was the person in charge. Uh, He had applied for reinstatement and Wells Barnett went to Cairo and successfully got that application for reinstatement denied. So the Springfield Forum had this to say on December 11th of that year, quote, Ida Wells Barnett is to be highly lauded for her courage and magnanimity. She towers high above all of her male contemporaries and has more of the aggressive qualities than the average man. It belittles the men to some extent to have a woman come forward to do the work that is naturally presumed to be that of men. But Mrs. Barnett never shrinks or evades. She is a heroine of her age, and the nation is better off for her having lived in it. Long live Mrs. Ida B. Wells Barnett. I love that quote. (laughs) Uh, Do you also love Listener Mail? I do love Listener Mail. This Listener Mail just came in this morning and it is a correction. Uh, It is about our episode about the Nisei in World War II, and it is from Brian, and Brian says, Dear Tracy and Holly, thank you very much for your podcast on the Japanese-American units who participated in the U.S. Armed Services during World War II, despite many of these soldiers' families being incarcerated in concentration camps. I had one uncle who served as a combat medic with the 442nd RCT, while another uncle served in the MIS in the Pacific. There were, however, several corrections that I wanted to address. The quote that the Japanese-Americans who served in the military intelligence service helped shorten the war by two years should be attributed to General Charles Willoughby, who was General MacArthur's Chief of Staff of Intelligence, not MacArthur himself. The 100th Battalion and the 5th U.S. Army were not successful in taking Monte Cassino from the Germans. After being stalemated, General Mark Clark decided to bypass the Abbey and take a sea route uh, to land in Anzio by on the way to Rome. Polish and British Commonwealth divisions did overtake the enemy on Montexino several months later. Lastly, the 442nd RCT did not enter Rome. The 442nd RCT landed at Civitavecchia, where the 100th Battalion joined the regiment. The regiment then went north with the 100th Battalion, going to Liverono on the Ligurian coast. <laughs> You both do such a fantastic job with your historical subjects, be it people, events, etc. I'm especially pleased that you devote time to reminding us that America is made up of many ethnic groups who have contributed to this country, even under dire circumstances. If either or the both of you are in San Francisco, it would be a pleasure for me to be your docent at the Military Intelligence Service Historic Learning Center in the Presidio, the first MIS school. Your loyal listener, Brian. Thank you, Brian. The first of these corrections... (laughs) about who the quote should be attributed to. I realized I messed up um, after a person came onto our Facebook page to make some, like, thinly-veiled racist comments. um, And I googled that quote and then was like, "Uh uh-oh, I said the completely wrong thing (laughs) in the episode. (laughs) Uh, And then I, I think most of what is there relating to where the units were going in relation to Rome was just me misinterpreting what was an incredibly complicated campaign. Uh, I I enjoy doing the some of the military history episodes where we talk about battles, um, but that was one of the trickiest ones to try to put together. Like, there was just a whole lot going on. So thank you so much, Brian. Uh, Brian also, sent sources for all of the corrections that he was making, which I very much appreciated, um, because occasionally we will get emails that say, historians agree that blah, blah, blah is not true, but like they don't really say where that information came from, and I can't find what historians they are talking about. So I very much appreciated the helpful sources and links that Brian provided. Thank you so much, Brian. I apologize for making those errors. Uh, if you would like to write to us, we're at History podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also all over social media as Missed in History. That's where our our Facebook and our Pinterest and our Instagram and our Twitter all are. Our website is at mistinhistory.com and you will find an archive of all the episodes that we have ever worked on and uh, show notes for all the episodes Holly and I have worked on. You can do all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is MissedInHistory.com. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you find podcasts. For
0: more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.